After her retirement, Dr. Brown was honored by the establishment of an endowment fund to perpetuate the series that now bears her name. Tonight's lecture is one of its ongoing gifts. Our lecturer this evening is Dr. Joseph Webb, Professor of Communication Studies at Gardner-Webb. Dr. Webb may be the most broadly educated member of the Gardner-Webb faculty. He has master's degrees in both journalism and theology and doctorates in the two different disciplines, the Doctor of Philosophy and Journalism from the University of Illinois and the Doctor of Ministry from the Claremont School of Theology in California. Before joining the Gardner-Webb faculty, Dr. Webb taught at California State University, Pepperdine University, Southern Illinois University, the University of Evansville, the Claremont School of Theology, Milligan College, and Palm Beach, Palm Beach Atlantic University. He founded the communication studies programs at both of the latter two universities. Dr. Webb is also an ordained minister in the Christian Churches and Disciples of Christ, has served as pastor and interim pastor of several churches, and is a past president of the North American Academy of Homiletics, which is an organization of professors of preaching in the United States of America. He's the author of several books on preaching, as well as a textbook on the new journalism besides. But before all this, Dr. Webb was an investigative reporter and editorial writer for Lindsay Schaub Newspapers in Illinois, in which capacity he covered events related to his lecture this evening. What happened to President Nixon from the lies to the resignation? After Dr. Webb's lecture, we'll hear, hear brief responses from three panelists as a means of generating further conversation. All three are members of the Gardner-Webb community. Dr. Elizabeth Amato, Assistant Professor of Political Science in the Department of Social Sciences. Dr. Joseph Moore, Associate Professor of History and Chair of the Department of Social Sciences, as well as Special Assistant to the Provost for Academic Enhancement. And Noel Manning, Associate Vice President for Communications and Marketing. Now, please welcome Dr. Webb. Thank you, Dr. Harmon, for reminding me that I have uh, traveled uh, easily from place to place. I, I, I think most of it was voluntary. Um, but uh, it, uh, uh, it, it does remind me that, uh, that uh, age has a way of uh, shifting us from spot to, put spot to spot. Thank you. Thank you. And my colleagues, thank you for agreeing to be part of this evening. Um, our, our, the, the, the origin of what uh, we'll talk about tonight is uh, essentially the... the um, uh, the amazing times in which we live and uh, uh, the fact that uh, uh, new forms of television and uh, other uh, happy media have uh, changed our world so dramatically that we cannot keep up with it 
and we are quite certain that uh, if we are away from our TVs or our little devices very long, something dramatic could happen and we would miss out on it. And uh, uh, so, so to, to think about this process politically, uh, particularly since um, uh, the tensions seem to rise by the day these times that we live in, and, and uh, it has taken some of us who are, uh, who are old enough to remember the 1960s and 70s uh, back to another time, another time and place. And it is that that has kind of set my mind uh, since as a young journalist in my 20s and early 30s, uh, I, I was assigned to follow some of these people around. Uh, I was based in Illinois, but, um, but uh, made my way to Washington quite often to keep track of our representatives in Congress. And uh, during those years, one of my most uh, vivid set of memories surrounds uh, the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Uh, I, I remember Mayor Daley's uh, blue-suited uh, uh, billy club-wielding uh, uh, groups that, uh, that uh, made themselves very felt during that turbulent uh, uh, couple of weeks in Chicago uh, in 1968 during the Democratic Convention. So what I'd like to do tonight is um, the, the idea behind this is not to spend time talking about current events. Uh, in, in fact, uh, to, to kind of set the, uh, the current events of our day, today, yesterday, the day before yesterday, tomorrow, aside, and to, th to think for a few moments about the era 40-some years ago, more than 40 years ago, actually, uh, during another time and place where the president went through very similar kinds of things that we see happening around us today. And the idea is that the, 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 the deja vu factor is getting so strong, it is very hard to ignore the fact that... Um, uh, in those years, those uh, months, years ago, um, uh, we, in fact, can learn lessons that probably have relevance to, to things that we could uh, uh, easily infer to our own time. And I hope to be able to, uh, to, to uh, sh uh, 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 at least share some of those things with you briefly. And, um, and with the help of our colleagues, uh, perhaps discuss some of them. Uh, 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 Professor Hobbs suggested last week that a timeline uh, for those events uh, of the 1960s and 70s uh, would be very useful. And what, what I have done to try to, to uh, enhance our experience this evening is prepare a, a a simple two-page uh, timeline. The pages of it were on the back. I, I hope that you saw and picked one up as you came in. 
um, because this will save spending time talking about and then that happened and then that happened and then that happened and then that happened because here's the that happens, okay? And when, it, when they did, uh, as, uh, as well as I think we can summarize those events. And what that lets me do is spend time uh, isolating a half a dozen, five or six specific things from that period that uh, we'll not try to tie too much to the timelines. They're all on here. But the things that, are, that shaped the events of the 60s and 70s with President uh, Nixon uh, that have relevance to today. Uh, and, and so that's the goal, to, to talk with you a little bit about some specific things that we learned from that era of the past that probably we ought to be aware of as having the potential to happen again, since the stars seem to be lining up in that kind of a fashion. Uh, did anything I say just make sense? Did that come out uh, the way we wanted it to? Uh, so, so that's the goal to to talk about um, uh, uh, to talk about a series of things, and I will. Uh, uh, the first thing that I wanted to, to, to so I'm, I've got a, a, a little agenda. At the bottom of the back page of this is that a little agenda, okay, with about five or six items on it that I'd like to, to, to comment on because I think they're particularly relevant to our own time. Uh, the first is to understand where this Watergate fiasco originated and how it came to be. And in order to do that, it's necessary to see this period from the uh, late 60s through the early 70s as a two-act play. Uh, and both of the acts are important, and in fact, it's impossible to have Act Two without Act One. And Act One is the story of what came to be called in the history books the Pentagon Papers. And this is that secret study of the Vietnam War that, uh, that Secretary of Defense McNamara authorized in, in 1967, and a secret study that uh, authorized, that put together all of the, the formal war documents uh, of, uh, uh, of the Pentagon for conducting the war in Vietnam. The result was about, uh, was, uh, was 40 volumes, 7,000 pages of top secret documents that were assembled just to assemble them, just to be assembling them, I think, and, uh, and uh, putting them aside. And uh, the, the story, and I'm, I'm trying to stay away from my timeline here because this is in the timeline, okay? Um, a New York Times reporter was one, uh, no, let me say it differently. One of the people who was authorized to put those top secret documents together was Daniel Ellsberg who in the course of doing so became very opposed to the war himself and managed to get a set of the entire papers to the reporters at the New York Times. Um, the bottom line was that it was illegal to have them 
the great story that Ellsberg wrote in his book called Secrets uh, tells the story of how the, those papers became uh, uh, public uh, in, the, in the New York Times. And it also tells the story of the legal fight to, um, uh, to keep them secret. And it was a fight that the Supreme Court settled uh, by authorizing the publication of all of the secret papers which the New York Times in 1971 did. Uh, I, I remember well that Sunday that the first of the series of the Pentagon Papers appeared in the New York Times and then began the court battles. Now, the, the point of that was this. What, what happened when they, those secret papers were published was this. We ended up with two accounts of the Vietnam War. One was the account that had been done day by day by day for, for, for five to six, seven years in the New York Times, where the Times reporters were writing about what they were told by the federal government during the war itself. So we had, on one hand, the New York Times account, day by day, every day dated, saying the troops went here, the troops bombed there, the troops came back here, the troops did this here, and you could construct that daily, that daily thing. Now, though, what we had was a second account, and this was the account that was in the 40 volumes of secret papers from the war. And what, those, uh, what that account showed was when you laid them together, now we got two columns. One column is the New York Times story of what happened. The other is the story that's told by the, by the Pentagon of what happened. And what, did they, what was the effect? The effect was that the stories did not match. And in effect, what the American people learned was that for the entire history of the Vietnam War, the American people had been systematically and consistently lied to about what was going on in Vietnam. And the power of the Pentagon Papers publication was in that discovery. And it wasn't lost on anybody. Eh? The Times and other newspapers that, uh, that got involved made that very clear. So we had lived with that lie. Uh, it had been a tremendous blow to President Nixon, who was president at that time, though, though Lyndon Johnson was a big part of the story before him. But the point was that, uh, that Nixon was furious that the Supreme Court allowed the publication of those secret papers. And one of the things that Nixon did in response to losing that Supreme Court battle was he appointed a secret group of his very own directed out of the White House. That was the group that he himself named the Plumbers. Why did he call them the Plumbers? Because they had one job. And that was to do what had not been done during the Pentagon Papers. He wanted the leaks from the government to the news media and the public plugged. Only plumbers could do that. Now, the first thing the plumbers did, which they did very quickly, now we are at the mid-1972 year. And the, the first thing they did was uh, go to Los Angeles and uh, secretly 
obviously secretly, break into the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg, who was responsible for the leaking of the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. They were looking for incriminating evidence because they were going to legally go after Ellsberg and try to get him back. Okay. Uh, they were discovered doing that, but that's where the plumbers began. Their second major event took place several months later, and that was the break-in at the Watergate Hotel complex in Washington, D.C. Now, for anyone who's seen all the president's men and knows of that, you know the story of the break-in, which uh, starts that movie, and the fact that the five burglars were discovered, and uh, the story just unfolds from there. The burglars are very quickly um, convicted uh, of the break-in, and then the question becomes, why did they do it? Who put them up to it? And for the next year, we go through a process of um, uh, Nixon, Nixon denying he knew anything about it, and, and um, all sorts of things happen. A $25,000 check of, appears in the bank account of the chief burglar, uh, which is uh, from the committee to elect the president. Creep. It was a creep check to elect the president. And, and over that next year, the, 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 the process, and, and it snowballs exactly the way we're seeing things snowball around us these days. Okay? In other words, there's another denial from Nixon today. Another kind of thing appears. Uh, 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 some, some additional information is found out about the burglars. And one of the burglars is unhappy and begins to write letters to the New York Times uh, saying, um, oh, we can't say anything, but uh, we didn't act by ourselves, and things like that. And it, it snowballs. Now, the timeline for that's here. What I'd like to do in a few minutes is this. Uh, I'd like to focus uh, on, um, on uh, the things that, uh, the, the half dozen things that I think are the crucial elements of this story. Uh, and we're talking about the Nixon story. Okay? Um, for those of us who are old enough to remember, many of these memories will come back. And, um, and, and I, I, I like that very much. Um, <clears throat> my agenda would be to, to tell you, say a few words about, uh, about these, these things. One, uh, to, to, to talk about the special prosecutors in this story um, because uh, they figure very importantly in the story in the same way that the special prosecutor figures large in our story today. The second thing is that uh, documentary evidence is absolutely necessary for any of these stories to develop legs. By that I mean talking and talking and talking and getting other people to talk and talk uh, counts for very little. Um, it, it will stir rumors and stir uh, suspicions, but it will not convict anybody of anything to speak of. That documentary evidence is absolutely essential for, for things to, to take root and grow. 
And I, wanted, I want to remind you, I suspect you know what the documentary evidence was in the Nixon era, but, but we need to take account of it in a very significant way. Third, I want to say a few words about the grand jury because the grand jury in the Nixon era was a crucial dimension of the story itself. And, uh, and, you can e and the parallels start to emerge very quickly once we start to talk about things like the grand jury and uh, the special prosecutor and, and so forth. Um, the, other, the other thing that figures large in the story is, the, is, is Congress, of course, but particularly the House Judiciary Committee, which uh, then as now plays very special roles in these kinds of events. And the House Judiciary Committee figured very large in the story of the Nixon, the Nixon era. Uh, and, and then the last thing is that uh, I want to make sure we can talk about the, the uh, articles of impeachment in the Nixon story. Because the articles of impeachment, of course, are the bottom line of this process that Nixon himself had to face. And the House Judiciary Committee forms the, the articles of impeachment that leads within uh, seven days to the resignation of Richard Nixon in August of 1974. Now, the Nixon story from beginning to end is two years long, almost to the month. It starts essentially in June of 72 and ends in August of 74. Four. So that's the time period that we are talking about. So let, let me very briefly uh, uh, say, say a few things about each of those elements in, in, our, um, in the Nixon story. Um, the, the, the first of these things has to do with the special prosecutors. Now, special prosecutors are not new in the American judicial system, not at all. But, but the importance of them in the Nixon story cannot be overemphasized. It took almost a year after the break-in for the special prosecutor to be formed. And in fact, it was formed uh, uh, by the attorney general who hired the special prosecutor. It was formed after Nixon facing all sorts of, uh, of things in the media. Um, blamed his immediate staff around him, uh, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, John Dean, those names will be familiar from that era. And, and Nixon blamed his, the people around him and fired them all. And, and it was that firing that caused the attorney general to set in motion the hiring of special prosecutor. The prosecutor he hired was a man named Archibald Cox, a very important name in this process because Cox, in fact, starts the process, starts the ball rolling. In the same way that, uh, that, uh, we, that uh, the special prosecutor today operates, operates under the radar, does, uh, does the things that prosecutors do in terms of, uh, of uh, working with grand juries and doing research and doing investigation and so forth. And Cox began that process 
uh, after about three months of working, we come to mid-summer of 1973. The the, the summer months of 73 were very important weeks during that um, that, uh, period of time. And the special prosecutor... um, I remember the day well. We, uh, you, you, some of you need to know that um, we watched a lot of uh, television during the summer of 1973 because the Senate formed its Watergate committee to do its own investigation. And, and while we didn't have Fox News or MS, whatever that other one is, um, uh, we watched it on the networks. Uh, people it worked. Turned we turned on to watch it. Uh, remember who led the Senate Watergate Committee? <laughs> uh, Sam Irvin from up the road. From up the road, um, uh, uh, with eyebrows that could talk, and uh, things like that. Anyway, um, uh, so we, we we were we were into watching the Senate begin to interview people live on television. And what essentially happened was that um, the the day I remember was the day that they had somebody in front of them at the witness table um, uh, who who started to talk and and asked the committee if they knew about the tape recording system. And, of course, nobody who he was talking to, including the the people on, in Congress uh, knew about the, the secret uh, recording system. And what, um, does anybody remember his name? Alexander Butterfield was his name. In, forever in the history books. Uh, Roger, forever in the history books. He explained that in the Oval Office, at the president's knee, under the desk, was a switch that operated a secret recording system in the Oval Office. And that uh, most often the president would keep it running all the time that something was going on in the Oval Office. And the purpose for doing it, of course, was Nixon was a writer. It actually appears to have gone back to Kennedy, though Kennedy probably did not use it as much. But uh, it meant that when they came to write their memoirs, they got a, a pretty nice a collection of uh, of audio tapes with which to uh, with which to recreate the events that took place in the Oval Office. Well, you can imagine what that set in motion, because now the question was, where are the tapes? We need the tapes, and the battle that began that day, July of 1973, was a battle for the audio tape recordings from that secret system. Remember I said that without documentation, this is a tough thing to do with people just being talking heads. But if you have a system that's collecting information for you, you have something concrete to sink your teeth into. And and the person who most was fighting to find those tapes and get them was Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor. Cox began to demand the tapes. Now, how willing do you think Richard Nixon is to turn over the 
tapes to the special prosecutor. Well, it was a battle that was going to extend for almost another year. Nixon gradually began to let some of the tapes filter to some of the committees that were beginning to work, the Senate Watergate Committee and to Archibald Cox and so forth. Except that the more pressure that was put on, the more Nixon began to, began to rebel. Uh, he made uh, all sorts of claims why he could not give those over and didn't have to. Executive privilege figured large in it. And as we began to hear some of the tapes, we began to find out where the phrase expletive deleted came from because it was a term that began to show up regularly in the transcripts of some of those tapes that were being released. But not all the tapes. There were missing tapes, lots of them. And Archibald Cox wanted the tapes. He was on the verge of getting them until about, um, uh, what, was the, what was the month? I forget. What was the month? Uh, October, October 20th of 73. We're past the summer now. And, and uh, something happened. Uh, Richard Nixon decided to, to take matters into his own hands. So on that Saturday night of October, uh, his, his um, uh, effort uh, resulted in him ordering the firing of Archibald Cox as special prosecutor. The attorney general was Elliot Richardson. Remember what happened? those of us who were around. Yep. Uh, Elliot Richardson refused to fire Cox and resigned, which left Williams Ruckel's house, the assistant attorney general, who also refused to, to fire Cox and he resigned. So the third person on the totem pole, Robert Bork, stepped up and fired Cox. What he didn't expect is that a week later, the uh, Department of Justice appointed a brand new special prosecutor to take Cox's place. His name was Leon Jaworski. Jaworski was even more tenacious about getting the tapes than Cox had been. So, so the, the uh, now, if, when we follow the tapes, it, the tapes will take us right to the end, because the one thing that Richard Nixon does not want to do, he does not want the, the, uh, the tapes to be in their entirety made public. And in fact, if we, if we jump ahead with that process, what we learn very quickly is that um, the, the end of the story, when we get into, uh, into late July, early August of 1974, when the Supreme Court finally enters that picture at the end, which it does, and unanimously orders Richard Nixon to turn over all of the tapes, which Nixon does. And the chief tape that he turns over is the tape that was made in the office on June 23rd 1972, six days after the break-in. 
And that was the tape they call the smoking gun tape, the one that has Nixon giving instructions to his staff to stop all of the work that is being done to investigate. It, it was aimed at, the, at, at all of the investigative units. Cease and desist your investigation. And with that, Nixon's time in office came to a, to a dull end. Okay. Now, a couple of other things to back up. Okay. And, and uh, 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 two or three other things, and then I will stop. Um, one is I want to say a, a few words about, uh, 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 about the um, grand jury. The grand jury is just exactly what it is today. It is a jury that is entirely secret. Okay? Grand juries are by definition. These are not juries in trials and things like that. Grand jury is an investigative body that operates entirely in secret. Uh, not only in secret, but way beyond that. Everything the grand jury does is held in secret. Only a court can intervene in order to make the dimensions of the grand jury public. And one of the things that Leon Jaworski did when he took over uh, in the fall of uh, 1973 is that he began to work with a grand jury. The grand jury had been around for a while, but Jaworski began to work with it in secret to, to carry out its full investigation. A and we know today about grand juries. We know how they have worked. We know how they work. We are watching it to some extent ourselves. But the grand jury in the case of the Nixon period was a, was a grand jury that under Jaworski's leadership did things in a strikingly different way. What the grand jury does is investigate, and it does so at the direction of a special prosecutor in secret, and, and Jaworski had an idea that the grand jury should make no judgments about anything it was investigating. In other words, it would collect information and keep it as dry and as sterile uh, as information could be kept. And the information would end up saying something like this. And then the president did this. The next day he did that. Then he did this and so forth. And all of that was well documented. But what was missing was any judgment at all about whether it was good, bad, or legal, or illegal, or anything of the sort. We've known that for a long time, but, but uh, we have never until just last month uh, had the, the grand jury's report from the Nixon era unsealed by a court. So, only in the last month are we actually reading uh, the, the grand jury report that went from the grand jury to the House, of, to the, the House Judiciary Committee. It's been under seal, 
as a grand jury report for 40-some years until last week. You'd go back to the news and you'll find it if you'd missed it, okay? But the remarkable thing was that it was written in such a way as to be about as non-inflammatory as you can get because the judgments were left out of the grand jury report and left to be decided by the Judiciary Committee itself. It's hard for us to grasp the significance, I think, of that without kind of uh, pondering what that means. Um, because what, uh, went to the, what went to the House Judiciary Committee was a list of actions, a list of behaviors, documented behaviors, but whether they were legal or illegal or, or, or the kind that somebody should make judgments about, the grand jury did not do in that case. A decision that clearly was made by Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor. The document, because of we, we know how it was put together, has come to be known as the uh, as a um, as a uh, a kind of map for how grand juries could best do their work. But when that grand jury report, secret though it was, went to the went to the House Judiciary Committee, which it did in. Early, late, late, I said it wrong, late July of 1974, late July 1974, um, it was that document that laid the groundwork for the, the Judiciary Committee. Uh, it was at that point that Republicans on the Judiciary Committee um, uh, turned against President Nixon when they when they read the grand jury report uh, that that uh, that went to them. It was then that they began to work on uh, a, a a large number of articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. Uh, the the Judiciary Committee landed on five different articles of impeachment as a result of the grand jury's report to them. Uh, it approved three of the articles of impeachment. Um, we know what they were. Uh, we actually have copies of the three. Uh, I think you need to know what the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon said. Uh, number one, the first article of impeachment that was passed by the Judiciary Committee to be sent to the House of Representatives. Now, um, I, I assume you know that, that even though these are sent to the House of Representatives, uh, Nixon himself is going to short-circuit the process because it is clear that the handwriting is on the wall the Republicans have let uh, have already visited Nixon and said it isn't going to work. And um, on uh, on uh, August 9th, Nixon submits his resignation about a week and a half later. 
The articles of impeachment are drawn up during the very last week of July. July 26th, 27th, and 29th, I think, are about the dates that are on them. The first one was for obstructing justice. Um, the main thing that uh, it is referring to is the comments that Nixon made in that smoking gun uh, audio tape from the Oval Office, where Nixon gives specific instructions less than a week after the break-in to, to stop all investigations going on by uh, the FBI, by the Justice Department, by Secret Service, and any other organizations that are beginning to investigate the break-in, Nixon wanted those halted. And in fact, his staff proceeded to make the phone calls and to try to do what was necessary to stop the investigative process. Nixon had blamed all of that on his staff. It was that audio recording where we hear Nixon's voice giving the instructions for them to do that. That was Article One of impeachment. That was called obstructing justice. Article number two uh, against Nixon was misuse of the power of the presidency. You can go online and read these too. Okay, misuse of the power of the presidency. Nixon began a, a, a kind of process that would extend over that entire first year from uh, mid-72 to mid-73, where he, in fact, uh, uh, what my granny would say, six, S-I-C-S, did, did that word come out right? He, 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 uh, he, he's, he wants to sick all of the, the investigative units that he can possibly find on, his, on the people who are making life miserable for him. He, in fact, instructs the IRS to collect and um, uh, uh, lists are drawn up of people who will be investigated by the IRS if they will not stop what they are doing in the studies of things they're finding out about him. Uh, he, he, the Secret Service are involved in that, as are the, um, the Justice Department, the FBI, and other investigative units. Uh, in, in the articles of impeachment, uh, that is, is uh, viewed as misuse of the power of the presidency. And Article 3 of the impeachment process that is passed by the House Judiciary Committee is contempt of Congress. Contempt of Congress. And by that, it's described as Congress continues to subpoena documents, including tapes, that Congress, the members of Congress want to hear from the Oval Office. And there are specific tapes they want. There is one that, that uh, Nixon has released that has the famous 18 and a half minute gap in it that somebody has obviously erased in the middle of the tape. And, and the effort to subpoena tapes uh, fails. Congress is ignored, and that is the third article of impeachment, and it's named different things, 
Many scholars refer to it as contempt of Congress because that became one of the major ways to, to, uh, to describe it, to talk about it. Now, the, the, the point of, of talking about these things is that these are, these are the kinds of things that, that um, uh, are, 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 will still swirl around us. Um, and, and, and that's as far as I will go in this process of uh, uh, trying to talk about and make connections between the, the present and the past. Uh, the idea is not to talk about the present, but to understand that some of the things from the past will still speak to us in various kinds of ways. Uh, it, there, so much happens during this two-year period from mid-72 to mid-74 uh, that there's no way for us in 20, 30, 40 minutes to be able to talk about it. But if you will focus as you listen to things going on around you uh, on the issues that surround the special prosecutor, issues that surround the um, documentation, we've gone from tapes to tweets and other things in between. But uh, without documentary materials, there probably is no way to make things happen. And in the case of Nixon, the tapes, without the tapes, the, the history would have been entirely, entirely different. Entirely different. And then the House Judiciary Committee. And the last thing that I would mention to you is this. The role of the United States Supreme Court in both the Pentagon Papers case and in the Watergate affair cannot be overemphasized. The reason that the tapes all came to light is because the United States Supreme Court in a unanimous ruling ordered the President of the United States to turn over every single tape to the congressional committees that were trying to get it. Without that, there would still be secrets tucked away. The Supreme Court's action made it happen. The same was true with the Pentagon Papers. We would never have heard about the Pentagon Papers if the Supreme Court had not stepped in and in a 6-3 to three ruling in 1971 directed that all of the Pentagon Papers' secret, top-secret war documents could be published by the Washington Post and the New York Times. Without that, history would have been different. Yes, the Supreme Court will, even in our own day, make rulings that will change the course of the most controversial of subjects we can talk about. I'm grateful for the chance to be able to talk to you about this. here. Uh, first and foremost, Dr. Webb, thank you. That was, um, that was well, I feel like I was there. Um, <clears throat> you were. I was. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Dr. 
Webb has offered us some serious and important insights, and they deserve equally serious responses. But before I become serious, I would like to point out that I once had lunch with George McGovern, just the two of us, because he had written a book on Lincoln, and apparently there were too many of those, and so there's only one person interested in going to lunch with him. So I, uh, I'm wearing my George McGovern pen that George gave me over lunch, and now to embrace irony of ironies, in order to give you a serious response to your thoughts, I would like to offer the contrarian opinion of the evening and offer a defense of Richard Nixon. More specifically, I'd like to ask us and students especially who didn't have any memory of, of, of these events to consider the role of media in the creation of American memory. And I would propose to you that Watergate has forever warped our history of the Nixon administration. It is that memory that so easily ports into contemporary situations. And we accurately remember that many of the mechanisms that are in discussion today found their maturation in the Watergate hearings. But the history itself, far more complex, may not so neatly fit into the present. Polls taken just after Watergate of who is the greatest president in American history ranked Richard Nixon 11th. By 1985, he had risen to 8th. Keep in mind that Nixon was the first U.S. president of the 20th century elected when his party was completely out of power in Congress. He was surprisingly popular amongst a large segment of the American populace. And there is something, I think, that is necessary correlation to today. The America of 1968 and 1972 is more divided than you might suspect. He is also a wartime president, elected largely on issues having to do with the Vietnam War. He began immediately and took advice from Lyndon Johnson on how to operate like a wartime president always pushing the boundaries of executive privilege in the same way Johnson and Nixon pointed out to each other as Lincoln had to do in the Civil War and FDR did during the Second World War. But to stop there and pause and then revisit the domestic agenda, Nixon's primary emphasis as president had relatively little to do with the things he remember, we remember him for, certainly not Watergate, which he often referred to as this tiny little annoyance that kept running across his desk, nor for his foreign policy achievements or failures, but for his domestic agenda. For instance, name the U.S. president who pushed for and got the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Natural Resources, Richard Nixon, formed in 1970. He was the first president to allocate major funding to clean up the planet. In fact, he's the president who issued Earth Week and later Earth Day. He funded $10 billion to clean up America's water and sewer systems. In fact, the Democratic Congress failed to pass over half of his proposed pieces of legislation on the environment. Then there's Native American issues. Dr. Amato and I were talking earlier when I was a previewing some of my remarks, and I said I'm going to talk about Nixon's civil rights legacy with Native Americans, to which I think you said, I didn't realize that was an issue we were debating. I said, it's not, because Nixon fixed it. 
Navajo, the Navajo chief in 1970, you can't remember his name, I didn't write it down as I was doing my notes, proclaimed, Link, uh, proclaimed him the Abraham Lincoln of Native American peoples. Did a 180 degree policy shift in American uh, Indian land rights issues, giving full autonomy or nearly full autonomy to Native peoples over their land, including over energy use, which is not an issue we think of a Republican policy today. He issued the first funded war on cancer, the first funded war on hunger. And then there's his civil rights agenda. Now, it's easy to point to Truman, Kennedy, and especially Johnson undertook Herculean legislative tasks to force through a recalcitrant Congress legislation that would involve, that would assure civil rights. But if you're actually looking for a president who did more to enforce civil rights across the 1960s and 70s and 80s, it's actually the Nixon administration. Nixon spent 800 times more of the federal government's money prosecuting civil rights and desegregation cases than the Johnson administration. In 1968, when he took office, 68% of black children in the South went to an all-black school. In 1972, 8%. Nixon was deeply committed to minority hiring, and that was a personal issue for him, with no particular political benefit. He supported affirmative action even after Watergate through the 80s, telling George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, publicly that walking back from affirmative action would be a disaster for the country. He saw a 3,000% increase in loans to minority businesses. He is the first president, and to this day the only president, I find this interesting given another contemporary issue we talk about a lot, to advocate for a minimum national income, which is now a Bernie Sanders issue. Actually put that to Congress in a special address, and it would have been the most dramatic overhaul of the welfare system of the past 50 years, and it would have tripled the amount of money poor families saw in their income. Now, what I find interesting about that is how few of us know or, rem or choose to remember that because media creates the memories that we substitute as history. We allow a narrative strand to stand in for the past when the past itself is a little more complex and sometimes uncomfortable than we want it to be. But, with my contrarian opinion now in the, in, in the open, I think Dr. Webb has brought out some of the most important and powerful connections of the past to the present. For instance, I'll return to this thought that I began with. America in 1968, 1972, and especially during the Watergate hearings of 73 and 74, was deeply divided after a long period of consensus. I would argue another media, distortion is a strong word, but certainly a creation of memory that we all assume is history, is that what is normal in American history is 1945 to 1962. A united American ideology, largely anti-communist, domestic growth, and a booming economy. These were the norms in American history. And therefore, American politics is kind of dull because everyone gets along so well. That is decidedly not the majority experience of American history. 
For instance, there were 3,000 bombings in the U.S. between 1969 and 1970. There were standoffs on college campuses. We think we can't get you guys to wake up. These people took over their campuses with guns, right? Now, that's a student protest. Talk to me about what's in the cafeteria. (laughs) There were young men being drafted for a war they didn't believe in fighting, didn't want to fight, and were willing to take dramatic risks to make that a political issue. No one is burning their draft card for the Korean War. So I think Dr. Webb has brought us to a point of perhaps continuity. I'm not sure this is particularly new. I think it's a legacy of the 1968 forward moment that we live in a divided America, that our politics have gotten dirtier and dirtier, that we have vilified the actions of each other's political enemies, and that we find our political enemies doing exactly the kind of dirty and corrupt things we expect them to do because we now have the power to find them doing it, largely thanks to the Watergate administration. Uh, the, water, the Watergate scandal. Keep in mind, Johnson and Kennedy do a lot of the same things that Nixon does. But the difference is, Watergate demands some level of accountability from government. And I would argue this, not because government got worse, but because Americans became divided again and were more suspicious of government in 1972 than they had been for the last 20-something years. And I think we're still suspicious of our government more than they were prior to Watergate. And I thank you for bringing that to our attention. Uh, You don't clap for the guy who defended Richard Nixon. That's not something you do. to lower it. I'm, I'm short. Can you hear me? Is it working? Hi. Okay. Um, as a political scientist, I'm going to focus on the constitutional aspect of Richard Nixon's presidency. Uh, the quick summary of, of what I'm going to say is actually Nixon didn't affect the office of the presidency that much from a constitutional point of view. Um, More or less, the Constitution functioned as it was supposed to, largely in part as actually Dr. Webb emphasizes the efforts of the Supreme Court and Congress. So, let's get into it. Richard Nixon's presidency is often described as imperial, and that's not a compliment. Being imperial conjures up images of Nixon riding roughshod over Congress, using his power unilaterally, and having a henchman named Darth Vader. It is the 70s, after all. Um, all with an autocratic air of secrecy behind it. So from a constitutional point of view, what do you do? What can you do with somebody like Nixon? What can be done to rein in a president? One solution that was offered during the 70s uh, is that the presidency as an office is too powerful and those powers must be greatly limited. Congress and the courts should take power away from the president. I think this is a poor solution. (laughs) Um, 
Ultimately, the Constitution has its own self-defense mechanisms built right into it, and that is, of course, separation of powers. The other two branches of government will push back whenever one gets out of line, and we do see that happening. Now, the 70s wasn't fun, and it was a painful process, but that's what happens when you get internal fighting in government. But there is still self-correction that happens. Um, I'm not going to focus on Congress so much because Congress's big bad checking mechanism is they threaten to impeach him and so he resigns. So um, I'm going to focus on the Supreme Court because then I can get into the whole fun constitutional issues. Yay. Um, I think that how the Supreme Court checks Nixon is a really good model for how we should think about checking and restraining presidents. That is, the solution to a wayward president isn't to strip the president of power, but for the other two branches, again, to do their job, to push back. In the Supreme Court case, uh, U.S. v. Nixon, which is, of course, the one that Dr. Webb alluded to, we see this come into – actually, I lost my, my notes here uh, – we see how actually the court's going to do this. The president can be personally checked, but the president's power's left intact. In fact, what we're going to see is, in fact, the presidency ends up emerging, even the office of the presidency emerges a little more powerful than even before. Um, I know we already heard some, some of the history, but let me just give some of the relevant facts of the case here. In 1972, when we had the break-in in the Watergate Hotel, that was, of course, the Democratic Party headquarters, uh, the DNC. The perpetrators were caught. What they were trying to do was to wiretap the telephones. Back in the day before cell phones, people had, if you wanted to spy on somebody, you had to physically go to their phone and actually put a listening device on the wires itself because there were landlines. You know, they plugged into a special outlet in the wall. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these before, these landlines. Um, there's one in my office, it occasionally rings. I don't really know what to do with it anymore. Um, spying was so much more riskier back then, and they did get caught. Of course, as they're caught, the investigation eventually reveals that it seems as if Nixon is behind this. Uh, Leon Jaworski, of course, tries to get Nixon to release the tape recordings they had in the Oval Office. Um, obviously, the recordings would have revealed that Nixon broke a lot of laws. Nixon, of course, didn't want to release the tapes, and he had an argument. He didn't just assert this. He actually had a constitutional argument. He claimed on the grounds of executive privilege that he didn't have to release any documents or recordings of any conversations with his subordinates. He argued that all of his executive communication was protected under the doctrine of executive privilege. He claimed that, um, actually let me get to turn my page. Um, what is executive privilege? Defined simply, executive privilege is the power of a president to withhold information from Congress, the courts, and even the public. Basically, the president can keep secrets. Here's the thing, every president I think almost every president, I'm not going to fact check that, since George Washington has claimed to have the power to keep some, doc uh, some documents secret. 
The grounds for this, of course, make sense if you think about it. National security, the need for confidentiality, to protect, and the need to protect sometimes key intelligence sources, all of these, and there are more, require secrecy to be done well. Thus, we're not trying to destroy the doctrine of executive privilege here, but we do have a problem. How do we protect executive privilege, the power that is necessary for the president to do his job well, and also recognize that, well, maybe Nixon abused that power? How do we, also, how do we manage to split that? Well, here's the thing. We don't have to think about it very hard because the Supreme Court already did the thinking for us. What actually the court says in U.S. v. Nixon is, you know what? You're right, Mr. President. Presidents do have executive power, or executive privilege, I should say. But you used it wrong. As the court says, and I quote, human experience teaches that those who expect public dissemination of their remarks may well temper candor with a concern for appearances to the detriment of the decision-making process, end quote. Basically what the court says here is that presidents do need confidentiality with their advisors, with their confidants, with their subordinates, with their secretaries and whatnot. Those advisors need to feel safe to say what they really think. Presidents need the best advice possible. Imagine you're uh, you know, advising the president. The president asks for your, your opinion on something. If you actually thought what you were going to say was going to get published on the front page of the newspaper or blasted all over social media, you might not say what you really thought. But to give presidents honest and frank advice, those people need to feel comfortable to say what they really think. So there we are. The Supreme Court has said executive privilege. It's a real thing. It's a necessary thing. But, here's the big but. The court continues that the president does not have a, quote, absolute and unqualified privilege to conceal all executive communication. He can't make a blanket assertion that everything he says to every bleeding a subordinate in the executive branch is privileged. That's absurd. Executive privilege must be balanced against other competing claims, such as the court's need to bring evidence to a trial, like handing over recordings about possible criminal doings. So here's the key takeaway. The big significance of U.S. v. Nixon is the Supreme Court affirms the doctrine of executive privilege but condemns Nixon's use of it. Nixon, Nixon was personally wrong. The court appropriately separates the person, Nixon, from the office and the powers of the presidency. Presidents are, as we should all remember, merely temporary caretakers and stewards of executive power. I think this is a good and a balanced approach. It shows that we can use the Constitution as a standard to judge presidential actions, the Constitution empowers presidents to have some secrecy, but recognizes that secrecy is only needed for some presidential functions, not all. The solution to presidential abuses of power is not to take power from the office of the presidency itself, but to check the person holding that office. Because the thing you need to keep in mind here is about the long-term health of the office itself. Whether you're on the right or the left politically, there will be a president that you do want to have 
executive power and to be able to use it well. So my conclusion for you is relax. Separation of power still exists. Those other two branches of the government will eventually push back on any president who may be stepping out of bounds, and the process will self-correct. It happens every single time. Thank you. I was going to get up and dance to be a little different, but I think I'll just, I'll just sit here. Uh, questions that have come up relating to media, um, both uh, uh, Dr. Moore and Dr. Webb both spoke about the, the impact of media and the role of media. Uh, you, if you think about Watergate and you go back to 19, what was it 19, uh, when was it that, that, that we first heard about the Pentagon Papers in the early 70s, 72? The media was involved in helping to, to shape that, helping to share that news, helping to ask the questions. So the question that we hear a lot today is what is the role of media? What is the role of media as it relates to government, covering government, asking questions of government leaders? What is that role? And is it the same as it was then or is it different? As we look at media, those are things that we are all continuing to ask ourselves. You know, what is the role of media also in shaping our history or our, uh, our memory of our history and the portions of our history? Uh, you look at film studies uh, over the course of film history throughout uh, the, the very beginning of film, they looked at things to adapt. They adapted books. They adapted real-life stories. So when you hear what we've heard tonight, why would you not take a story that sounds like there's no way this is fact, this is fiction, and why not find a way to turn that into a movie? And that's exactly what happened with, with Watergate, with the, the film All the President's Men that you mentioned. Um, Nixon resigned in 74. August of 74, and in less than two years, we had an Oscar-winning film covering that with all the president's men. They had the stories all lined up in front of them with all of the media reports, so they were able to capture uh, the essence of what had happened, uh, and, and let me say the essence of what has happened, and, and a particular essence of what happened, because when you have a two-hour film, there's no way, 120 minutes, in 120 minutes, how do you capture everything that happened? You can't. So when you're adapting things to screen, directors, screenwriters, they all have a, a, a play in what actually gets seen on screen. And many people will go to these films that are based on true stories or biopics that are based on biographies, snapshots of a person's life. You, you look at the movie Lincoln a few years ago when Daniel Day-Lewis uh, won the Oscar for that, and that covered just a very small section of his life, but it was just a snapshot of it. So to me, when I think of these films, when I think of the impact of the media, uh, especially as it relates to the history that we see on film, if it challenges us to ask more questions, to dive deeper, 
then I think these films have done their job. Now, many times there are films when they say based on true stories. It may be based on five minutes of actually something that happened, but if it gets you to ask questions and dig deeper, then maybe it's doing something. So you think about films relating to media and films relating to government. There are four films that I want to mention. All the President's Men, I've already mentioned that. Uh, also, The Post uh, that came out last year uh, with Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep. That looked at the Pentagon Papers, and um, Dr. Webb and I talked a little bit earlier, and he was not a big fan of that movie because it didn't tell the whole story, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's hard to tell the whole story. But if it gets people asking questions that maybe never heard about the Pentagon Papers, maybe it's doing something. Maybe it's doing something. Also, a movie called Truth from 2015 that looked at kind of the downfall of Dan Rather when the media sometimes doesn't, isn't able to uh, make all the right connections. That movie's called Truth. Another one that's just released recently uh, called The Front Runner. Hugh Jackman stars Gary Hart. Gary Hart, you may not know who he is, but Gary Hart was a presidential frontrunner who because of a scandal uh, relating to a boat called Monkey Business, he ended up losing his chance at being a president. Yeah, you can't make that stuff up. That's real stuff. So politics and media, they go hand in hand. But I, I continue to want to ask that question, what, what do you think the role of the media is now as it relates to government? And I'm going to ask this to, to Dr. Webb. Um, you, you served as a journalist. Uh, you have studied this. And what do you think today the role of media is as it relates to government and holding our government accountable? The, prob the problem with answering a question like that is that uh, media is, is itself multiple things. And, and uh, it, the, the, the monolithic dimensions of media, while they probably did in fact exist in the in the 1970s, 60s, and 70s in many ways, certainly do not, uh, are not monolithic in the way they were then now. So we have to talk about the media from a political point of view, from an entertainment point of view, from a communicative point of view, in fact. Um, and, and the answer in each case is going to be dramatically different. Um, I, think, um, I, I think both, uh, 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 Joseph, you certainly were getting at that at that point to a certain extent and um, and, and um, uh, uh, one of our one of our problems with with media is if you take a case study like all the president's men which is the movie that basically taught the American people what happened in Watergate um, um, you know and and you you try to think critically through it uh, I'm one of those who believes that the garage meetings with Woodward never took place, that they were a creation of Robert Redford after he bought the, uh, the, the rights to the movie because uh, those, uh, those meetings never show up in the first draft. And uh, that's where we ought to find them, and they're not there. After Redford gets a hold of it, we have a new story. So it's, it's very hard to understand how to piece through all of that. And uh, 
I think the information got communicated uh, from, uh, from Mark Felt to, uh, to the reporters, but I think they were all memo writers. I don't think they were meeting in secret garages, um, but movies are better with the garages than the memos. So it's a different kind of, um, a different kind of thing. But, uh, but uh, you ask uh, terrific questions, and I know Joseph can, uh, can handle most of those. Yes. <laughs> uh, in, in as much as, as, as we get into what media affects the memory of that, I, one, I, I, do, I, I think there's something here to be, to be said here for your point, the diversity of media. And there is a, a more diverse media today than there was in 1968. One thing that is more accessible, I'm not going to say it's new because it's not new, but what's more accessible is political satire. Right, that is ubiquitous in American commentary. And I would argue as many Americans learned about what they think happened at Watergate watching the Redford movie, most Americans, let's go ahead and put the elephant in the room you know, out there, most Americans think and average everyday working Americans process what they think they know about the Trump administration and whatever scandal of the day is, and especially if we're talking Russia, and especially if we're talking any of these kind of uh, the Mueller investigation, largely because of what Trevor Noah or uh, you know Seth, all, any, any of these commentators on late night TV can find the because that's what comedy does. It finds the utter essence of the thing, the thing that makes it a little bit ridiculous brings it out, does it quickly, is consumed quickly. You know, it's the kind of high-calorie sugar of news. And I, I think that is a more accessible, more quickly. And I do think Americans probably had to wait longer to process what they thought was happening from news media. 19, you tell me if I'm wrong. Between 1972 and 74 than people do today. But that's just a, a thought on that. And you guys may want to move this to, do you want us to talk? Do you want to each other or? Why don't you talk? Ahead, Steve, what do you want to do? Go ahead, Kent. I want to hear Kent. <laughs> While he's coming up, political satire, you think about the early 70s, SNL, you know, they really launched, and they took it to a level that probably before that you had Laugh-In that did some of that, but SNL in the 70s really did take on the government in a way that... Uh, probably others hadn't quite done on TV before. That's true. But now, you don't have to wait till Saturday to watch Could, SNL. The whole we, thing. Nobody watches the whole thing, right? Everybody just watches a YouTube video now. Shows up in your feed, and you watch a whole bunch of them. You can also watch my favorite, John Oliver. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, just a uh, comment. I'm not quite as old as Dr. Webb, but I, I'm old enough to have lived through these events. And I'm old enough to remember, and, and it's complicated. And you've already, all of you have mentioned some of the complicated aspects that were a part of it. I remember, I guess what I would add to the pot to stir up is feelings that I recall from having lived through it. I remember, you know, there were, they were tumultuous times. You know that. 68, Kent State. We're talking about, four, talking about college students. Four college students killed on their campus by troops, you know? And so this kind of stuff, you're living through it. What, what strikes me, uh, uh, talking about the difference with the media back then, well, first, there weren't that many sources, you know, that 
but you had Walter Cronkite every night. You had certain, you know, newscasters that were huge. I mean, these people were the purveyors of truth, you know, and, and the New York Times, Washington Post, you had certain sources of, tr of trusted media, and I'm sure all the stuff that you talk about happened in the Johnson administration and the Kennedy administration going on back. It's nothing new. But there was something that happened with the Watergate, well, with the Pentagon Papers and then with Watergate that I think at a feeling level affected the psyche of most people living back then. And that was, first of all, with the Pentagon Papers, I would say our government has systematically lied to us. We can no longer trust these people. And secondly, with Watergate, this president is systematically lying to us. We cannot trust this person anymore. I am aware of EPA. I know about Clean Water Act. I know about, I haven't forgotten any of that stuff. Earth Day. One thing maybe people don't remember today is you couldn't see the LA skyline. You couldn't drink the water in the rivers. It was not going out on a limb for support of environmental legislation back then. Everybody wanted it because we couldn't breathe the air and we couldn't, we couldn't drink the water. And people forget that as a result of that legislation, we cleaned up our air and our rivers to a significant degree. And so, so people were on board for that. But I think that, you know, all the stuff that had happened and then to be hit in the face, even though we probably thought to ourselves, I know I did, you know, am I, have I been so naive you know, to have trusted government at all? So there was a great disillusionment. And I think it may have been played into the fact that you get Jimmy Carter elected. I think what sank Jimmy Carter and his presidency as far as re-election was the hostage crisis that went on for, for so long. And, and everybody just felt helpless. Like, here we are. And it was humiliating. And they tried to send in the helicopters to free them. They crashed in the desert. And like, here we are. We think we're the greatest power in the world. We can't even do anything, you know. And so they're, re they're released on the day of Reagan's inauguration. It's kind of like the final poke in the eye. But, um, I, you know, you have Reagan, cowboy hat, cowboy movies, reminder of good old days. Let's, let's get America, you know, on a different track again after all of that stuff that had happened. So for me, the feeling... I think going back to that time was a feeling of disillusionment with government, a feeling of, of just having been betrayed, a sense of betrayal, and a feeling of we can't trust government anymore. It took a long time to get that back. I don't know if it's even come back. But the, 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 the media today and the, the, the different sources for getting news, you no longer have it filtered through just a few channels. So now people get their news from so many different sources. There's no way to, you know, I think one of the last sources that we trusted as a people were the, those news sources. And now I think that's up in the air. I don't know that, I don't know that there is, there may be, I, I hope that we can at least find some sources that we can trust to dig up and, and at least for the most part tell us the truth. But I think that back then at least there was a trust in the, in the news media. And I don't know if that's going to hold true going forward. That, was, that would be my big question mark about for the future. Is there any place where you can turn to some place where you can hope that people will be truthful?
And then you can depend on them to tell you the truth. Any of you like to respond to that question? <laughs> you really hit a strong point with trusted media. You think about that time, three networks. So when you talk about your TV media, your TV news, you had three networks and then, of course, uh, public broadcasting. But Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. Not just no, most trusted newsman, but the most trusted man in America during that time. So, yeah, it, it, uh, you know, now, you know, how many different outlets are there? You know, you count every social media outlet out there as well. And who do you trust? I think that's, the, that's a question right now is which, which outlet do you decide that you're going to trust and follow? Good point. And, and Dr. Lovins, I hear, I take your point. I, I, I think back to Dr. Amato's point about the kind of cyclical nature of all this, there, there, there tends to be this, this movement in a direction and then a course correction, right? And I think what we're in, and I don't know where we're in, I, I don't predict the future, I deal with dead people's mail, right? But historically speaking, I think we're somewhere in an extreme course correction that we've been in before in terms of media, in terms of trusting media. Because if you go to the, say, the the revolutionary and early Republican era, there's not one media source everyone trusts. In fact, you know what party alignment you have, and you know that your newspaper with your party affiliation, that's the newspaper you take. And if you're a Democratic Republican and you read that other paper, well, I don't trust anything in that newspaper because that's all trash, right? That's all that Jeffersonian stuff. And we're not that around here. We're Hamiltonians. No, yeah, we're Hamiltonians, especially right now. All right, so then you see a waning of that for a while, and you do see a more national narrative. And then you get to the 1850s, you know, the, the Compromise of 1850, which is one of these classic disasters of moderation. Let's try to keep everybody happy, and that's just going to make it worse. And then the, you see another polarization in the media, and you would know more about the history of media than, than, than I would. I, I think we saw in the, in the Cold War, you can't have Walter Cronkite if you don't have Soviet Russia. There would be my argument. Because you have to be so scared of something that will blow you up that you need that voice of reason and calm and fact to, to bring that to you. But once the, once the kind of air goes out, as the air starts to go out of the balloon of anti-communism, we have a, a country that's, I, don't, I think Watergate's a pivotal moment, but we have a 1968 Democratic convention that's full of riots, and we have Detroit in flames in the, in the late 1960s. Um, there's a lot of social unrest, and I think as, as that post-war, or that Cold War consensus starts to come apart, it may be that media is the last piece of the puzzle to get disaggregated. Our politics get disaggregated first. Our trust in the nation, especially our politicians after Watergate comes undone, and it's a little later before the media apparatus starts to come undone. But I think we're now at that, maybe the edge of that course correction. We, we don't trust the media anymore either. Well, whichever media we choose to not like. So, yeah. Questions from others in the audience? All I would say is I remind you that in the early 70s, the vice president was famous for two things. He was accepting bribes and he was attacking the media, battering nabobs of negativism. That was his famous catchphrase. So that distrust of the media was being planted at least or, or mm, propagated whatever during that very early 70s. And secondly, I challenge what you said from the very beginning. 
I think it's even false dichotomy because whether or not Richard Nixon did good things for the EPA or whether he went to Sunday school every week has absolutely no, no difference on what he did in Watergate. His crime was in Watergate. It wasn't in, in, in the legislation he got passed or didn't get passed. It was what he did in that specific instance. That was it's kind of aimed at me, but I want to give, defer to you here. No, no, you don't have This is why you don't defend Richard Nixon. Um, nah. I mean, Nixon gets caught at possibly the smallest thing he ever did. Sure, but so did Johnson and so did, and so did Kennedy. So, so, but what, I hate Richard Nixon to the deepest level of my core. But... The things that Richard Nixon did that were truly horrible aren't the things that he gets caught doing, right? He gets caught. Let, let's look at the um, the taping of the taping of the taping of. Here's a civil liberties violation. Let's tape the conversations of average citizens who are who are against us. The IRS, which was brought up, the IRS targeting people. Those are violations of people's civil liberties, and that is something Nixon did. That's not what he gets in trouble for. That's something that Johnson did. Johnson never gets in trouble for it. That's something Kennedy did. Kennedy never gets in trouble for it. Now, I'm going to go on all day long about why I don't like Richard Nixon. My point is, is to think through the complexities of the history compared to the simplicity of the memory. Who's, who's talking? Come. They asked for repeating of his, of his statement. Oh, oh, I didn't understand. Yeah, okay. Say it, Roger. Yeah. Hold it a little closer, sir. I'm just, all, I'm saying, all I'm saying is that there are two issues. Maybe Richard Nixon was a wonderful president. Maybe that he, did, uh, he was progressive and, uh, with uh, civil rights. And maybe he was progressive with the EPA and, and on and on. That's one question. Did he commit crimes in Watergate? That's the other question, and they are not a marriage. He violated the presidency in what he did in Watergate. It has no judgment on what he did on the, on the other things. That's all I'm saying, that it's a, it's a false dichotomy. Well, in fact, that's the, that, that's the riddle of, uh, of uh, Richard Nixon, is that he, he did an amazing number of things that with lasting effect... And, and then at the end, he violated virtually every institution of government in a way that our laws are designed that they not be violated. And it was, in effect, a, an undoing. It doesn't undo all of the good things that he did, but it certainly under, undoes him as president who can continue in office. And... Um, I, when you when you when you look at at the details, and we didn't go to the details with what I said, but when you go to the details of the articles of impeachment, and they are very detailed, there are they are not just general statements; they are details of what he did at every step of those ways. Um, it, the the list is almost unnerving. 
Um, and one of the reasons for us thinking about it is that we don't necessarily want to be unnerved by those things again. And, and so uh, uh, that's why from my point of view, those kinds of things are worth our thinking about, looking at, because they were very disruptive at a particular time in our history when he was, when he was president. Um, now, that doesn't take away, I, I, I think Joseph is right, that doesn't take away, you know, even, even you, you know, things like his China policy and his, his, uh, his activities overseas, which were quite different and, and progressive in many ways. But, um, but when he came right down to keeping the house uh, together, keeping, I mean, our government together, the house of the government together, um, uh, he, he broke about all the rules. And, um, and that's, what, that's what that all came down to. And to, to Dr. Amato's point, that's, his great legacy is that we care about that, right? That, that we see the exercise of the, of the other branches of government checking a president. My, my point would be it, it takes water. It's only at Watergate that we start to try to rein in the imperial presidency. We still haven't succeeded. Is there anybody else who would like to say something? Join us before we come to the end. I always have the questions. Um, One, this is just so good to be here, and it's been really enjoyable, and thank you for your time. My question, I think, is now what? So you've lived through this, Dr. Webb, many others in this room. What would you want to impress upon those that didn't live through it for our present? And, yeah, that's my question. Yeah, uh, thank you. And how nice to see you here tonight. Thank you. Um, uh, 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 what, uh, what I would like to say uh, to those of you who weren't there is, we missed you. We had a good time. Wish you could have been there. Uh, but then again, I'd like to be around for your 50 years next, and I think I would enjoy that one too. But, uh, uh, but the, 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 the point is that there are danger spots along the way. And I think our being alert to the kinds of... There, there are those of us who believe in the democratic processes and, and that we live in times, not just our own time, but times along the way where there are forces that try to undermine the democratic processes that, um, uh, that as a country we seem to have tried to embrace. And... And to be able to recognize when those are, are being threatened, I think, is a very valuable long-term thing uh, to learn as part of our higher educational process. In as much as, any, as we can find connection points from the Watergate moment to the ongoing, never-ending Twitter crisis of the present, I have a penchant for saying controversial things. I am deeply encouraged. Let me finish my statement before you scream at me. 
I am deeply encouraged by the Trump presidency, not because of the man who is the president, but because we have seen the voracious defense of turf by the other areas of government, including in the executive branch. And that is something that your timeline pointed to brilliantly. We have a special prosecutor who is, the order goes out by Nixon, fire the special prosecutor, and two people say, I won't do it. And they get fired before Bork comes up and says, I'll fire anybody for the job. That's great. Right? And, and hopefully, oh, that's all that one. So that's integrity in the executive branch, as well as integrity by the Senate Judiciary and, the, and, the, and the, the House Judiciary Committee. And we're seeing that today. Trump can't get anything done. People in his own executive branch keep kind of finding ways to not follow that order. And that tells me that there is enough distrust that it's one of the peculiar geniuses of the American governmental system. We have a government we're not particularly fond of. And so we never want to give it too much power. And in my mind, I'm seeing time and again people not allow their one person in their government have too much power. And I find it to be an encouraging reflection of some of the bravery that we saw in Daniel Ellsberg and others. Stop watching late night satire TV. Late, it, it's funny, it is, I watch it, so I'm lying anyway, and I will continue to do so, but my, my, my broader point here is, is that you watch it too much, and you start thinking cynically, and you start actually not doing things. When, when I was in college, way back in the Bush administration, um, everyone watched Jon Stewart, and I remember when his book America came out, and at the very back page, I think he was, had this little statement, he was like, go vote. And then he had it calculated out how much your vote mattered in a presidential election, and it's like some fraction point. It's a decimal. There's lots of zeros. And I just thought to myself, that is the single most depressing thing you could ever end your book with, and that's actually cynically how he views the world. And that's actually what satire on TV desensitizes you in a way it seems funny. And I know whenever elections come around, they all go out and do the get-out-the-vote things, but they don't really believe it. Um, they teach satire, and they're trying to poison you on what you can do. You will never change the world. That's okay. But there are lots of things within your reach and your grasp, because if you're always trying to change the world, you're always going to realize you won't. Aim to do what is in with your power. That's all you're actually ever called to do. Don't try to change the world but do what you can where you can. However small it is, it's within your power, and that's what you will be evaluated and judged for, and that's what's going to matter to you most. I say watch political satire. I, I, I say watch it. But also I say become a news junkie. Outside of your comfort zone, don't just look at the news that, that fits with your political style. Read what else is being out there. Listen to what else is being out there. There's so much of it, it's hard to, to separate all of it. But if you're only listening to one particular point of view, that's the only point of view that matters. Everything else doesn't matter at all. I've seen over the past eight to ten years the country continue to be divided more and more and more. Uh, I remember having a conversation with uh, Jeff Powell, who works here at Gardner-Webb, and uh, this was when 
McCain and Obama were running against each other. And I remember saying, whoever gets this job has got a long road in front of them, and it's not going to be easy to fix. It's going to be tough to bring this country back together again. And I'm still saying that same kind of thing. When we refuse to talk to someone, when we refuse to have dialogue with somebody because they may think differently about a particular topic, then where are we going to go? So I say let's talk to those who have different points of view. Let's listen to them. Let's have a dialogue with them. You may not agree with them, but let's have a dialogue with them. You may find that there are certain points of view that you agree on. So become a news junkie, listen to others, dialogue with others, step outside your comfort zone. I don't get a chance to say it. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We have appreciated it. Um, when we set this in motion, we didn't know exactly where it would go. Thanks to this gentleman who kind of made it all kind of come together. I'm grateful for that and for these, my colleagues. But thank you all for being a part of this tonight. Thank you, Stephen, for the work you do very much. Thank you, Dr. Webb and panelists and all of you for coming. We look forward to seeing where this leads in the future and perhaps having future such conversations. Good night. Thank you. We still have refreshments. Please partake. Thank you.